0: Last week, my intention was to preach from Matthew 11, the first 19 verses. Um, but in the providence of God, Marilyn and I were exposed to somebody who was sick with this virus. So, in an effort to be prudent, um, we stayed home. And then John came and he preached a wonderful message from the verses following from 20 through 30 in Matthew 11. Uh, Normally we don't preach backwards, but this morning we're going to do that. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 11. And read along with me, if you would, as I cover the first 19 verses in this gospel. Beginning in chapter 1, this is the Word of God. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Lord, we come to you to gain your wisdom this morning and to gain your wisdom through your word that you would help us this morning. We ask to have ears to hear and not just ears to hear, but listen, listen in our minds and listen in our hearts and listen in our souls that we might draw near to you as you have drawn near to us. May our thoughts and our attitudes this morning be adjusted by your spirit that we might glorify your name. Open your word to us, Holy Spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. From the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we've observed many reactions to Jesus, Joseph, to the wise men, Herod, Satan, Jesus' disciples, the, the many crowds surrounding him, Gentiles, the sick, the demon-possessed, and religious leaders, all reacted to him in some manner or fashion. There was worship, there was confusion, there was doubt, there was anger, there was amazement, unbelief, faith, and opposition. And the reactions continue still in this gospel. In Matthew eleven one, we just read... Jesus has just finished instructing his disciples, and now they're on mission. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach. And so Matthew writes and tells us that Jesus has instructed these men, all of chapter 10, sends them on mission, and then makes it clear that Jesus now alone goes on A mission himself. Here in chapter 11, we're introduced to three different groups of people that Jesus is encountering. While he is alone on mission, as Matthew writes, he went on from there. Normally, as you would read in the gospel, you would say, Jesus and his disciples, or they went on from there. But here we see he goes alone. And so he is about to encounter a number of different people in different ways, what they are seeing and what they are hearing and their reaction to him. And so three, three main points this morning, they are a doubting prophet, a curious crowd and a critical generation, a doubting prophet. Verses 2 through 6, a curious crowd, 7 through 15, and a critical generation, 16 through 19. A doubting prophet. And also, as we study this doubting prophet in a moment, we're also going to see a patient Savior. It is in Matthew 9 where we first see Jesus encountering opposition questions come his way. Why, why do you eat with tax collectors? And, and why do you eat with sinners? The Pharisees ask. And, and why don't your disciples fast? John's disciples ask. But here in 11.3, a stunning question comes from a very surprising source, John the Baptist himself. John who is in prison. He hears of Christ's deeds, but he's not sure if Jesus really is the Christ. Now when John heard in prison, about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, "Are you the one who is to come, or or shall we look for another?" That's a very puzzling question because John knows Jesus; they're cousins. John is the one who baptized him, is the one who declared, I must decrease and he must increase. And he's the one who said, as we read in John's gospel, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet he questions, is Jesus the one to come? Is he truly the Messiah? It's a a question that seems totally out of character for John, this, this doubt that he has. What what causes this courageous and fiery prophet who, who wasn't concerned or afraid of anything to doubt the Messiahship of Jesus? Now, as a prophet, know that John was well acquainted with the Scriptures. He, and, and, and Scriptures that created expectations of the Messiah of the Messiah to come based on all the Old Testament prophecies, and particularly in Isaiah 61. John would have known well, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. John would know that passage. He would know what is to come when the Messiah makes his way onto the scene. But it appears to John that although Jesus is faithful to many of this prophecy, he's not faithful to all of it. His expectations are a bit dashed. As he expected this, all of this, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, he expected this from the Savior. He, he did expect the Savior to heal and to preach, but also to judge in vengeance. And Jesus didn't do this. As John has observed, he's heard all the deeds and he's heard the miracles that Jesus has performed. He's the healings and the deliverance and the good news preached to the poor. But in all these blessings, John's question is, where's judgment? Where's the the judgment that was prophesied in Isaiah 61? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners rather than condemning them. He's healing Gentiles and unclean lepers rather than standing back from them. Where is the judgment that is to be pronounced? And the reports John hears, they're absent of the fiery judgment he expected the Messiah to bring. And so he's bewildered, which causes him to to doubt and to wonder, is, is this the kind of ministry the Messiah is supposed to have? I understand the healing, John says. I understand deliverance. I understand the preaching of the good news to the poor. But where is judgment? That's what I've been preaching. Where is vengeance that he is supposed to bring? When will the axe be laid to the root of that brood of vipers, the scribes and Pharisees? And this company that he keeps tax collectors and sinners, Gentiles, and choosing fishermen and a tax collector to be his disciples, that's not judgment. That's not cleansing. That's not what I've been preaching. That's not fitting into into my understanding of repentance and judgment. Jesus is just simply not meeting John's expectations, and that's what causes him to doubt. And coupled with these Unfulfilled expectations are John's circumstances that would trouble anybody. He is forced to ask these questions because he's in a prison cell. He's in a prison cell and not just any prison cell. He's in Herod's dungeon, which is not much more than a a pit, a piece of unimaginable hardship and suffering located in a hot, unrelenting desert. Now listen, humanly speaking, John's life is a disaster. He, he called Herod out on his sin, his immorality, and now he's in prison because of his faithfulness to God. He did exactly what the Lord told him to do. And he wonders if prison and the shame and the hunger and the physical torment and the loneliness are his rewards. He knew the Psalms well, and he wondered, where is the God of comfort? If Jesus is truly the Messiah, why does he, John, as the forerunner and servant, still suffer in prison? Where, where is God's love and compassion upon my life that I've seen you exact on others' lives through your healing and care and compassion? Where's, where's my compassion? And, and where's the justice? Why, why is Herod in this place and I'm in this place? Where is God's promise that the Messiah would bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners? I'm still stuck in this prison. Now, it's, it's not John's experience That's the problem that he's having with doubt. But his unfulfilled expectations. These unfulfilled expectations and these circumstances, they're what's bringing John to his knees. If you are if you are anywhere near my age, having me grown up in the late 50s, mid 50s, 60s, 70s, but in the 60s in particular, afternoon at four o'clock, every day reruns of Superman. (laughs) Black and white, Superman wearing a spandex suit that did not look very good on him. And if you remember, Superman was, he was it. He was, you know, man of steel, able to to leap, had a single bound, able to fly, x-ray vision, bullets couldn't hurt him. Except there was one thing that brought him to his knees, Kryptonite. From the planet Krypton that exploded where he came from. And any time he got near Kryptonite, it would bring him to his knees. And these unfulfilled expectations of John, amidst the circumstances of his life, which have created even more unfulfilled expectations, this is John's Kryptonite moment. That's bringing him to his knees. You can, you can only imagine the lies that he hears as, from the devil as he suffers in that prison pit. Why am I still in this place? I have been faithful to God. I've proclaimed his word. I've denied myself. Why am I being treated like the one under judgment? and pu- he's puzzled puzzled by his experience and unfulfilled expectations and he he struggles with doubt and and don't we all when our expectations are unfulfilled when our circumstances kryptonite us don't don't we struggle i i do i can identify with john 8 8 years ago where when a lot of things were happening in in sovereign grace and I was on staff at the church in Charlotte, and we at that time realized that due to uh, a loss of membership and all the things we were going through, that we were overstaffed. And, and so Mickey and I are sitting in the office, and we are the two old guys. So even eight years ago, I was old. And, and, and Mickey just looks at me and basically says, one of us has to go. And it was in the... In the In the wisdom of God that made the decision, I was to go. 58 years old, suddenly recognizing I'm going to be out of ministry. This is all I've done for the past 30 some odd years. What am I going to do? And I remember numerous times where this church called, would you be interested? That didn't work out. This church called. And I remember I was The Lord had spoken about this church. And I was driving down Eastfield Road when I get a call saying, no, this is off. It's not going to happen. And it was at that moment, kryptonite entered my car. And I looked at God and said, what do you think you're doing? All that I have done for you? Are you serious? This is how you want me to end? But God was very kind. And He forgave me of my sinful, arrogant, unbelieving attitude. Thankfully, Eastfield Road is a long road. (laughs) And I was able to find grace in that moment as the Lord spoke to me. But that was a kryptonite moment. And you have to see from John's eyes, he sees the wicked untouched by judgment. He sees them in their prosperity. He sees their trouble and their free life just like we do as we look around us, just like David did as we read in Psalm 73. David felt the same way. It caused him to doubt. It caused his kryptonite moment. But as for me, David writes, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no Hangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. David, me, John, we all at those moments question God's purposes. I don't don't understand the Lord. What did I do to deserve this? Is this how you treat your children? But like every human, John doesn't fully understand the mystery of God's providence. But he's not suffering alone because God is much closer to him than he is aware of. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus responds to, his, to, Jesus, to John's disciples. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor of the good news preach to them. Even as John expresses doubt, Matthew wants us to see Jesus' tender patience with John. He responds to John's question. With gentleness, the same way he responds to us when we are doubting or lacking assurance or struggling with his providence in the circumstances we face or the expectations that are unfulfilled in our lives. It is a patient and kind and compassionate Savior that shows John's disciples who he is so that they can go back and encourage John with what is true. Luke Luke wonderfully describes this same event when, when he writes, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, get that, in that hour... Luke writes, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind received their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus Luke gives us a much fuller picture. Jesus does all these things right in front of John's disciples. He doesn't tell John's disciples, Hey, this is what I've done. He does it right there. Now, imagine the disciples of John and their amazement as they're watching the deaf hearing and the blind seeing and the lame walking and the dead being raised to life and hearing the good news preached to them. And they can go back to John and they can say, Oh, brother, we have seen it. He is real, he is who he said he is, all for John's sake. Jesus, in his compassion, does this so that John will no longer doubt. And then Jesus, in his closing words to these men, before they go back to John, just provides a gentle admonishment. In verse 6, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, this is a beatitude. Blessed are are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who are not offended with me. John, don't be offended with me, but trust me, and you will be blessed. I, I have it all under control. I am the Messiah. I will do my work the right way at the right time. Judgment will come, but not in the way you expect. Not the answer John was looking for, and he still remained in prison, soon to be beheaded. But the story is not over. Like John, sometimes our prayers are not answered as we expect. Our circumstances do not change as we expect. The mysteries of God's providences are beyond us. But even when they are dark, they are always good. Now John will not see in his lifetime all that Jesus accomplishes on the cross. But he will in eternity, just as we will. This gentle admonishment that he gives to John is also to us. It very well could apply to you this morning where you doubt because God has not fulfilled your expectations. God has possibly not changed your circumstances. And the Lord is saying to you in a very gentle, compassionate way, I am near and don't be offended by my sovereign purposes because you do not understand them. Just know my providences are good. A doubting prophet and a very patient Savior. Second point, a curious crowd and an unnoticed Savior. What did the crowd expect of John? Jesus says, as they went away, as John's disciples left, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, which is another way of saying, look, Those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Ah, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. What did the crowd expect of John? Now we see another reaction, John's reaction to Jesus. Now we see the crowd's reaction to John, and as we will see to Jesus as well. What did they go out to see? They went out to see a prophet. Now understand, prophets had not been seen in Israel for more than 400 years. And among the Jews, there was no higher calling than to be a prophet. So, So these men and women, these crowds flocked to the desert to see this unusual event taking place. And expectations of prophets We were always high in Israel because they were spokesmen, the spokesmen of God. But hearing John's message didn't exactly appeal to them. They ended up, they were fuming over what they heard because it was a hard message. It was a a message where Jesus asked them three times, What did you expect to see? What did you expect of this man? What did you expect to hear? What, What did you want? And he tells them, listen, what you went out to see, you thought you went out to see a prophet, but you are seeing so much more. And Jesus tells the the curious crowd, John is more than a prophet because he's the very one who announces that the Messiah has come. He, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Now, this is actually a rephrasing of the Malachi 3.1 passage. Jesus is quoting this as the Lord, his father speaking to him about John. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you. Jesus makes it clear this man is far more than a prophet. And John's greatness arises because not only is he a prophet, but he's the fulfillment of prophecy, the prophecy of this Malachi verse. John is the forerunner, and that should mean something to you, Jesus says. But you don't get it, he says to the crowd. You don't don't understand what this means. What it means is the Messiah has come. Their reaction to John, their expectations of this prophet, they, they they didn't understand why he was there. They didn't get that he was the forerunner. They didn't get that as Jesus is talking to them, it's the Messiah. It's the very one that John prophesied about. And then he goes on in verse 11 to tell them, to tell the crowd, that in all of the human race... There has never been anyone greater than John. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Despised as he was by the religious leader, Jesus says he was great in the eyes of the Lord. And if it's surprising that John's the greatest man who ever lived, listen, it is more surprising that Jesus makes the next statement, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The greatest man who ever lived is not as great as the least person in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not denigrating John but bringing out, brothers and sisters, the wonder of being in the kingdom of God. That's about you. That this great prophet, this forerunner, this fulfillment of prophecy, considered the greatest man, greater than David, greater than Abraham, greater than Jeremiah, greater than Isaiah, greater than Samson, greater than any man who ever lived, And Jesus says, you, you are greater than him if you are in the kingdom of God. That should make us wonder. Great though he was, understand John belonged to an old order. He's among those who preceded the kingdom. And the kingdom's humblest member, whoever that is, surpasses the greatest in the human race. Now, does this make the kingdom attractive to them? Sadly, no. In 11, 12 and 3, 12 through 13, Jesus goes on, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. This saying about violence literally foreshadows the gathering opposition to Jesus that we've already begun to see in this gospel, which will come to a climax in his arrest and his trial and his beatings and his execution on the cross. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent people attack it. That is what is being said here. And it is a warning to those in the kingdom of God. There's a cost to being in his kingdom. Violent people attack it. And at the time the kingdom is being violently treated, its followers will be rejected, and we will experience violence, even as we see in John's case. This kingdom that's been prophesied, that is a wonder to behold, that God has brought us into by his Son, this kingdom is dangerous. It's dangerous to be a part of this kingdom. It's dangerous because Jesus says, of me. I'm the threat, Jesus says, because my kingdom has come and it threatens the kingdom of this world. And John's coming in the spirit of Elijah confirms that that kingdom is now here. Jesus in Luke 1.17 speaking of John says, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so here is John who has come in the spirit of Elijah. And Jesus' question is, are you willing to accept that Elijah has come? Because if you are then you are accepting that I have come as the Messiah. If you accept me, my kingdom, just be aware that violence goes with it. And to the crowd, Jesus asks, what do you see and hear? Do you see Elijah? If so, then Christ has come. And here's the question. Do you have ears to hear this? So we have this doubting prophet We have this curious crowd who have not quite figured out what they have expected of this prophet. And then we have a critical generation with a righteous judge to come. Now, in verse 16, we learn about this critical generation, this critical crowd. But to what shall I compare this generation, Jesus says? is justified by her deeds. Now now we do. We learn more about the crowd that's been hanging around Jesus. He uses a phrase that will become very familiar as we read on in in Matthew's Gospel. And it is the phrase, this generation, which is often followed by these adjectives, wicked, perverse, unbelieving, adulterers. They are passages that reflect this unbelieving crowd and their unwillingness to respond to Christ, to his gospel. And so Jesus moves on in in 17, and and he tells them a parable. Now, a parable is simply a, a story told to provide a more profound lesson, a truth. And so Jesus tells them a parable. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not mourn. He tells this critical crowd about children in village life. It is Jesus is the one who is playing the flute. And it is John who is the one who who sings a dirge of repentance. Both are criticized and both are rejected by this unbelieving crowd. Oh, yeah, Jesus, John came. And he was an ascetic. He he didn't he didn't he ate locusts and honey, he lived in the desert, he wore camel hair clothing, just like Elijah did as we read in Second Kings, he is he is this man who who's just apart from the crowd and you say he has a demon. Because he wasn't eating and drinking and partying with the rest of the culture. And now you've got Jesus coming and all of a sudden he's eating. And he's eating with sinners and he's eating with tax collectors and he's he's drinking with them. And you call him a drunkard. And a glutton. And basically that phrase that he eats with tax collectors and sinners is one subtle way of saying you are unclean. This generation, Jesus soberly declares, is like children who are dissatisfied with everything. It's not a flattering parable. He illustrates their criticism and their unbelief with a criticism of his own. They are like petulant children, contentious with everything and whatever game is offered. Jesus' critics were not interested in truth, but in criticizing he and John. But they don't have the last word. Because Christ, Christ's wisdom, Christ is wisdom. Christ's wisdom will be made justified by her deeds. The righteous and divinely empowered deeds of John and Jesus, my friends. They produced righteous deeds that resulted in repentance and forgiveness of sin and redeemed lives. And Jesus shares, he shared a beatitude, he shared a parable, and he closes with this proverb, yet wisdom is justified by her deed. Proverbs is simply a, a short saying to express an obvious truth. <laughs> Matthew, Matthew is revealing to us Christ is the Messiah. He's the one who has come to save and to judge, and judge he will. As as you remember, sadly, in Matthew 7, from every generation, every generation will go through the wide gate. Many will go through the wide gate in every generation, many. And that is the wide gate that leads to destruction. And only a few will enter through the narrow gate that leads to life. This, This is the judgment to come. Oh, John's expectations are going to be fulfilled. Maybe not in his seeing, but they will be fulfilled when Christ judges. And there'll be a day of judgment for all of us. And he will separate the wheat from the chaff and the sheep from the goats. And this critical generation, this crowd, in their own folly and human wisdom, just as in every generation, they reject Christ. They reject the deeds of Christ. And what they reject most of all is the greatest deed of all. It is the deed that justified God's wisdom through Christ's crucifixion, his suffering and his death on the cross, the shedding of his blood for us that we might find forgiveness and reconciliation and life through that sacrifice. That is the deed where wisdom is justified. And it isn't until the resurrection that the wisdom of Christ is fully seen and understood. Luke writes it this way. He says, wisdom is known by her children. And brothers and sisters, we are the children of wisdom. To his critics, Jesus asks, what do you see? All you see now is a demon-possessed prophet and a gluttonous drunkard who is friends of sinners. But in reality... You don't see, but one day you will. So the question, what do you see today? What do you see in your struggles or your life? Do you, do you see the savior? Do you doubt his goodness? What are your expectations? When we doubt, brothers and sisters, Satan, like a roaring lion, shouts lies to us just as he did to John. God is not who you think he is. But John, listen, John, John, even in the midst of all his doubts and unfulfilled expectations, what John did not do was wallow in his own human wisdom or go somewhere outside into another human. He went directly to Christ. He sent his disciples to go ask the only one who could answer that question to Jesus. Who do you go to when you're having your kryptonite moment? Who who do you see? Do you look upward to see the author and finisher of your faith? Or do you look to what is around you and to your own human wisdom? Listen, Jesus knows we have doubts and uncertainties. Scripture is filled with them. Moses, Elijah, David, Jeremiah, they, they all had doubts. And when they did, the Lord showed him, showed them himself. He was always near. What a, what a comfort to us that in our uncertainty and in our doubt, God draws near to us and when we look and when we look at him we see him we see him in his word we see him in his church we see how near he is and in our doubts brothers and sisters jesus never condemns us he doesn't want us to be offended he wants us to look with faith that he is good maybe you're not a doubter Maybe you're just one who is curious or maybe you're a critic of Christ. Listen, Jesus is the Christ. He is the one who's come to bring salvation and forgiveness and hope and peace. But you, you must believe if you don't. You must believe that he is the Savior. You must put your faith in him. And like John, you must go to Christ if you are not in his kingdom. Let me appeal to you. Go to Christ. Go to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You are near in Your Son. Thank You that You are present among us always by Your Spirit. Thank You that as our Father, You always hear our thoughts and prayers. That the triune God is always present among His people, not condemning, but caring. Not rejecting, but strengthening. Oh, Lord, help us to grasp this wonderful truth that you are near to us. And may, may, we, may we rest in that truth today. In Christ's name, amen.